morning. Uh, what happened to Calista? I have your clipboard. And there are not nearly enough names on here. So you would just have to collect more names. All right. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Yeah, I think that's better. So would you, as a courtesy to other people, just check and make sure that your cell phone is off or in the sleep mode? Yes. So thanks to Lauren and, and John and Tim for being back there to make sure that this um, happens today. So let's begin as we always do. Let's uh, do what you need to do to be here. The um, goal is to be present in the space while we're here and to be open to whatever wants to happen and to be awake. And um, I, I thank those of you who are here who made the choice to be here instead of at the World Cup. Because that's what's also going on now, right? So we know who the real Christians are. <laughs> so. so grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And grace be at our ends and our and at our departing. I use this every day in my own practice and I commend it to you. It's a good prayer that I appropriated from a Gallic um, piece of music that was sung here by the choir of St. Paul's probably four or five months ago and then it just really spoke to me and I really adapted it. Anyway, my, my hope is that you find what you're looking for by being here today and that you just keep in mind that the trinity of ordinary life is love, honesty, and freedom. And uh, we do what we do here with the belief, and I'll speak to this a little bit more later today, that what we do in this space benefits all people everywhere. So I'm glad you're here. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So um, this is the last time that I will have an opportunity to remind you in person of the Jan Phillips event that is going to be the very first full weekend, not the first Saturday, but the first weekend uh, in January. Um, this is the first book that I read of hers, Still on Fire. I recommend it. You can get it on your Kindle. Um, it's a great book. I love her writing style. I've read other things by her, talked to her numerous times. 
And um, the weekend that she's going to be here, we're looking to um, create a, a faith of joy and justice. We want to feel the, the joy of our hearts and brains working together to open ourselves to the support of other people who are here and to discern the service that we are being called to. Uh, the people who um, are behind this thing, which is the Ordinary Life website, in case you haven't seen it, it's constantly updated, like, for example, uh, for people who were going to the Christmas party on um, Friday night, you just go to this place, click on events, you can find a map, and it, it will be updated for the map that will be at the, the happy hour that will be at the Herberts later. If you go to this website, this is the landing page, and click on this particular button right here, that will give you registration information. And we've had a few kinks with that, but Tim assures me now that they've all been worked out. And if you're watching this from some other place, and uh, I'm really grateful for the technology that allows us to do this, uh, to reach those of you who are in, I got an email from somebody in Iowa wanting to know if we would be live streaming the event, and the answer is yes. So if you register uh, and send your money, which is minuscule, you will be asked to send your email address, and on the day of the event, that email address will be used to send you a link so that you can join us for the entire Saturday event. We'll have cameras in here. We'll be here all day on Saturday, and then again, she'll be here on Sunday morning. So I really hope that um, you'll sign up for this. We have not had an event like this for a good while, and we were working uh, under John Watson's encouragement, um, strong encouragement to have other people, and I'm working to get Suzanne Stabil here for later in the year. Those of you who know her know that she is one of this country's leading authorities on the Enneagram, and uh, I think that would be really helpful for us to have. It's a great spiritual tool to know. Okay. So as I was saying, back in October, you remember. Um, I'm going to pick up right there. So if you don't remember, you're kind of lost, I guess. But <laughs> before I do that, I want to express my really profound and sincerest gratitude for the time I have been allowed to make a major transition in my life, Sherry and I have moved from the house we lived in for um, 38 years to a high-rise that is right around the corner here. And when I first said to the steering committee what I thought I wanted and needed, I got way more than I asked for. They knew a lot more about this than I did. I think that I have been in denial and very naive about how expensive emotionally and physically moving is. It's just very, very difficult. More so, I think, for Sherry than for me. Uh, she helped design the house that we were living in. It meant the world to her. But all the decisions that have to be made, all the letting go of stuff, all the getting used to new things and routines, like where the light switches are 
and uh, pee path in the middle of the night when you have to get up and go to the bathroom. And to make it more complicated, we did not have bedroom furniture for the first almost four weeks that we lived in the apartment. I mean, we didn't have our bedroom furniture. We slept in what's called the guest bedroom before moving into the main bedroom because I've now learned you don't say the master bedroom anymore. We old people have got to learn so much. Anyway, it's just been exhausting. And I said yesterday, now I need a vacation, but that ain't going to happen. So to Jim Bankston, Adam Deloach, Frida Hale, Wayne Herbert, Casey Kelly, Tim Leatherwood, Pam Poo, Lynn Stroth, David Taylor, and John Watson, thank you. Thank you very much. And for those who brought us meals, Barbara Buckner, Frida Hale, Joel and Mary Ann Shields, Jeannie Martin, Lynn Schroth, Galista Herbert, thank you for that. And for those of you who taught or arranged teachers, Barbara Roberson, Stephanie Warfield, Jeff McDonald, David Leslie, Bill Martin, Holly Hudley, Brian Powers, Stephen Kleinberg, thank you. It takes a village. So I'm profoundly grateful. We are all profoundly grateful. Now, I am not negative or depressed about our moving. It's a relief in so many ways. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and sevens love novel and new things. Sherry's a four on the Enneagram, so she has a tendency to have a strain of melancholy and miss things and, and grieve. But just to give you a hint of the good side of this, this is a photograph from the balcony of our apartment the first night we stayed there. So, and we get this view a lot. It's really, Sherry will call me periodically and say, um, by the way, much of marriage is uh, learning to yell, what, from the other room? So Sherry will call me frequently, and after I've answered the question several times of what, I will go and see the, the sunset. So I've been uh, grateful for and blessed by this time off, and I have deeply missed being here. I've missed being doing what I'm called to do, which is um, teach this class. And um, I've had this chance to reflect during this time on what has been and what will be. I think often of uh, the Dog Hammarskjöld line from Markings. If you don't have that little book, it's really worth having. You know, for what has been, thanks. For what will be, yes. He addresses this line to the great mystery. So today, this last Sunday to teach in the new year, but also an introduction for what I'm going to be teaching in 2023 um, is a reflection on what has been and what will be as we move together in our life called ordinary life. As for thanks, as I have reflected on it, all of my work in the religious spiritual arena as a teacher in two seminaries, as pastor of multiple churches, including this one, as a spiritual teacher in all of these places, all of my work has been guided by two overarching and at times seemingly overwhelming interests and concerns. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and we are curious, uh, inquisitive, uh, 
nosy type people. Um, I think that's one of the reasons for my lifelong interest in magic and in kaleidoscopes. Um, I want to know the secret of things. I want to know how things work. So the two things that actually have propelled me, actually since my 20s, um, have been first, a phrase that was introduced to me um, uh, by um, a German theologian, the phrase was authentic existence, and the theologian's name was um, Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann was a German theologian, um, and it always seems kind of interesting to me that the Germans have been the people who have produced the best scientists, the best mathematicians, the best philosophers, the best theologians, and also they were the people thought up and carried out the Holocaust. So anyway, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, I was enamored with. I've read everything he's written, I think. Um, and at the time I taught in seminary, I followed his model um, and I smoked a pipe I had a corduroy coat with leather patches on the elbows, and I played golf. And I was horrible at all three of those things. They never worked for me. So Bullman was a German Lutheran uh, pastor, theologian. Um, he was way ahead of his time, and he really scared the bejesus. That's a great word for what he did. He scared the bejesus out of people because his way of approaching scripture was what he called demythologizing the biblical text. And myth and demythologizing are words that scare a lot of people. But what he, what he said was that um, if somebody should hear and reject the biblical message, it should be that they reject it not because of nonsensical ideas like the earth was created in six literal days or Jesus literally turned water into wine or was born of a virgin, but rather it should be that that person clearly hears what he called the call to authentic existence and rejects that. And I think that's why one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is John 10.10 10, where Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, what does that mean? Now, um, Bowman was not the only influence for me. There was um, Harry Emerson Fosdick and the books that he wrote. There was Paul Tillich, his wonderful works around the whole topic of the courage to be. Um, but it was Bultmann who landed that first psychic blow to my solar plexus that knocked the wind out of me. That opened me for the new winds of the spirit. So I credit him with that. What is authentic existence? What does it mean to be a real person? In uh, 1964, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, in a case attempting to define what was hardcore pornography, famously said, I may not know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. So I think that's is true about authentic existence. It may take us for the rest of the time that we are together to get better and better and better at understanding it. But everybody in this room knows what it's not. Dogs can spot it quickly. And so can little children. 
And it seems to me that the two professions that are most open for the exercise of inauthenticity are politicians and clergy. Not the only professions. Law and medicine offer their own avenues away from it. But the, the, the second major poll was my encounter with the writings um, of um, Carl Jung. If there was an accessible door to understanding what authentic existence might mean, Carl Jung opened that door for me. And uh, there is a passage that I have used countless times here and other places where Jung says, and he says it in a variety, in, in a number of places in his writings, he says, among all of my patients in the latter half of life, that is above the age of 35, there's not been a one for whom the resolution of their personal difficulty did not reside in finding a religious solution to life's dilemma. Now, Jung didn't mean religion in the way that we think of religion. As a matter of fact, he was kind of anti-religion. But um, uh, he didn't mean a set of doctrines or beliefs. What he meant was what AA and what Bill, Bill Wilson mean when they talk about the way out of addiction beginning with having a vital religious experience. Uh, which, by the way, is not something you have at summer camp. It's um, not something you get in, in junior high. So what is a religious outlook? What is a vital religious experience? These two things, authentic existence, being a real person, and authentic religious experience or vital religious experience have been, are, and probably will be continued to be the driving engines of things that interest me and that I want to learn about and, and teach. Now, <clears throat> though there were hints that these two emphases came to me very early in my life, I was not able to articulate them until the 60s, the early 60s. And uh, I'm not talking about the chaotic 60s. I'm talking about the Camelot 60s. The Camelot 60s are when John Kennedy was elected, you know, those 60s. Um, I had been assured of a teaching position in graduate school uh, I'm not sure that I was aware of what the term Holy Grail meant at the time, but my experience was that I had found it. Um, I had graduated from Baylor University, and the pa patron saint of Baylor University is um, Robert Browning. There's a whole building dedicated to the Browning Library at Baylor University. And uh, students at the time I was there were required in English to take sections on Robert Browning. Patron saint of the Baptist. The spring, the years at the spring and days at the morn, mornings at seven, the hillsides dew pearled, the larks on the wing, the snails on the thorn, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. That's the way it felt. But then, you never know, do you? By the way, that's the title I've given for this time today. You just never know. And I'm advocating this as a motto for our ongoing spiritual work as we seek to make the sacred already sacred. Now, you know what happened in the 60s, right? All hell broke loose. 
Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Protests against the Vietnam War, especially those that culminated around the Democratic Convention in Chicago of that year and the things that were happening in Los Angeles uh, and Detroit, made parts of this country like war zones. You think that it was, it's bad now. Boy, it was really bad at that particular time. Then instead of the, the MAGA folks, we didn't have MAGA as a label, but we had divisions of the long hairs and the hard hats. You just never know what's going to be on the next page when you turn it. I remember when I started in private practice in Houston, there was an invention that came on the scene that revolutionized business. It was this. Now, some of you don't even know what this is. This is a fax machine. And a fax machine meant that you could take a paper document in Houston and you could put it in this fax machine and transmit it to New York in five minutes. And that revolutionized especially the legal practice because whereas it used to take days to turn a brief around, now attorneys could send it from one place to another in that short period of time and bang, you had, and things began to speed up. It was an amazing invention. I eventually had one. At the time, this thing came out. They cost thousands of dollars. I mean, really. Now, no one could have imagined then, you just never know, um, what joys and horrors would be delivered to us by the digital revolution. I am told that there is over 100 times more computing power in the watch I wear than was on the first capsule that landed on the moon. You just never know. I remember I sat on the front row and heard Elia Delio for the first time, and she looked out over an audience of a 1,000 people, and she said, um, let me tell you something about what I know about you. Most of you, you're demographic, you're over the age of 55, so likely what you learned in high school is that there's one, maybe two solar systems, and then in our solar system, which is in a minor part of the Milky Way, we rotate around a minor star called the sun, and maybe there are other, maybe there are other solar systems. Now, now we know, and I'm quoting Ilya now, she said, now we know that there are probably two or three hundred billion other galaxies, and what we can measure is 80 billion light years across. Some of you remember when I came back from that, right? And, 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 and I was so juiced up and excited about it because my intuition was she was absolutely right in, in, in what she was saying. I imagine if somebody from the future had come back to tell the person that I was, the person that I thought I was back in the early 60s, what it would be like in 2022, I would have thought they were nuts. You just never know. By the way, um, the um, James Earl Telescope is giving us information that, out, that dates Ilya's stuff. This is more and more and more. And you know what's 
fun and interesting about it is that this information is being made commonly available through the papers and through places on the in internet that most of you can read or have access to. As a matter of fact, it is reported, and I have a photograph of this, that an angel said to God, you need to clean up your desktop. <laughs> so let me give you some perspective, because some of you are in this group that I'm going to talk about. I am in what is known as the 1% age group. Now, this age group covers a span of 16 years between 1930 and 1946. Okay? If you are in this age group and you are still alive, you have outlived 99% of all the other people who are currently on the globe. You're part of the 1%. So those of us who are in this 1% can remember World War rattling our every day. We save tinfoil and tin cans and newspapers and that sort of stuff. Our parents had ration stamps for gas and for milk and for meat and for cars and for things like that. There was no television. I did not get a television set till I was in junior high. It got two channels. We had one phone in our house. It hung on the wall. And a lot of people had phones that they shared with other people called party lines. Typewriters were things that you banged out, and had to flip a carriage to make it go back. Polio was a frightening thing for parents. Now, I'm not a scientist, but it's equally clear that both you and I benefit from the strides that have been made in multiple arenas since then. You just never know. What we know about what's out there and what we know about what's in here, especially in the brain, what we're learning, is just phenomenal. And most of what we call the educated public know about this stuff. Not all of it, not all of it specifically, uh, but you know it because just of what's on television. And what's in motion pictures, our daily commerce, the social media, internet, so forth, informs us about knowledge of matters that would have astounded us two generations ago. Now, when you get into some of the softer sciences, perhaps not so much. Uh, as uh, I mean, comparable gains have been made, but not so much knowledge has been disseminated and is well known. When... Dr. Brian Powers spoke here a few weeks ago. Wonderful talk, Brian. It was really great. And I, I, and I hope you remember. If not, go back and listen to it. It's a Mary Magdalene, Apostle to the Apostles. He was giving us the fruits of relatively, I'm talking about since the 60s, 70s, 80s, but now really made available through training programs like the Living School that he has been to, insights from the field of biblical studies. Uh, such information was not readily available to people outside the academy, as it's called, until the, uh, something like the Living School comes along. Not only am I grateful that 
Brian taught, and it was a great talk. But I'm grateful that that kind of thing is available to anybody here who wants to know it. And I'm grateful that that kind of information could be taught in this place. Because there are not a lot of churches where that kind of teaching can take place. Sadly, but that's true. And by the way, it is uh, because there has not been a broader dissemination of this kind of information in the general population, especially in religious organizations, that we have the MAGA situation that we do today. No educated thinking person any longer believes that homosexuality is a choice. But that erroneous thinking has led to a split in the Methodist church. And the phrase, you just never know, can be a huge liability if there is information that, lead, that would lead to expansive life and living and we are shut off from it. And someone here says, but wait, I know plenty of smart people, people who even have PhDs in their area of specialization who don't believe any of what you just said. They don't hold any of the views about advanced biblical studies, beliefs that lead to full inclusion of all people regardless of sexual orientation, to say nothing of the church. So how do you explain that, smarty pants? You mean you and I know some of the same people. I know a man, I've thought about how I wanted to say this because I don't want to divulge his identity. Well, I'll just tell you his name. No. <laughs> I know a man who is one of the most gifted people in his area of expertise you could ever hope to find. He has the relational skill of Lent. <laughs> now, you know people like this. Some people have highly developed skills and intuitions in some areas of life, but not in others, which is why it is possible for someone to have a PhD in the chosen area of their profession and not have a clue about the emotional wake that they leave in the lives of other people. You know, you know what a wake behind a boat is. A boat goes, leaves a wake that up is disruptive. The boat doesn't know it. There are people who live their lives like that. So having expertise in one area of life and not in others explains some of the differences. Some people have their biases. They might have their mind made up about something, and when that mind is made up, no new information gets in about anything. Upton Sinclair is the one credited with saying, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So I could go on listing reasons, but there's exciting news that's going to be our map for the future. It's over the really exciting stuff. Now, it's not without its dangers. It's not without its risk. Um, but if we use the insights and opportunities I want to lift up today as a map, we will be following together for our own personal growth and enrichment 
something that is so exciting. Now, you've got to use this without it being divisive and a tool for divisiveness and becoming judgmental. Now, why do I say this? And, and I'm being way overly too simplistic. We'll have to get into this in, in uh, more depth later. But let's just say in one of the models of growth, and I'm going to show you several that we have possible. Let's just say that, you're, that there are eight levels of development and that you're at level six. You might look at somebody who's at level three as if they're stupid. All right? Consequently, on the other hand, if you're at level three and you are around somebody who's at level six, you might think what they're saying is nuts. So we have to be aware of these risks and, and to kind of be able to be comfortable with that. So my challenge is going to be how to present this in a brief but thorough way as an overview, which is what I want to do now. And um, just hang on. So not long ago, I, I introduced a theme called Living Between the No Longer and the Not Yet. That's still where we are. If you remember Stephen Kleinberg's presentation from this space last week, he talked about a new demographic. Not a demographic that's coming. It's one that's here right now. Now, that demographic doesn't reflect itself in our political leadership. It doesn't reflect itself in our ecclesiastical leadership, but it's going to. And getting from here to there is going to be chaotic. And this is where we come in. Because we're going to be the voices of reason and sanity out there that can provide some solace and some reason for the chaos that is inevitably coming for us. Stephen Kleinberg, by the way, is a, is a, a great presenter and has done new work. So, the, 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 you know, I'm talking about making sacred the already sacred journey, and I'm adding to it a subtitle of the way of awakening. So when somebody asks you what's ordinary life about, you can tell them that ordinary life is about making sacred the already sacred journey and walking a path of awakening, being awake. Now, just as there has emerged in science, physics, quantum mechanics, cosmological discoveries, just so, there have been developments taking place in the psychological and the spiritual arenas that are comparable to those. And one of the brilliant minds when it comes to what's now being called integral theory is a man named Ken Wilbur. Ken Wilbur has written many books. And I want you to know about one of them. I am not recommending this book because I don't understand it. I've tried to read Ken Wilbur, a couple of his things I can just barely get, but he's over my head. Ken Wilbur, as a colleague of mine said uh, to me on Friday, we were talking about Ken Wilbur, and he said, Ken Wilbur is a genius at doing what he does, but he's not a good communicator. And I think that that's, uh, that would be a way to put it. So I'm going to show you Ken Wilber's integral map. Please don't panic, okay? Just, just, just look at it, and don't try to do anything with it because it will make you panic if you think you've got to try to understand this. <clears throat> 
I've lived with this for quite a while. So uh, integral theory is an attempt to look at the whole picture of why we are the way we are, why we believe the way in things we believe, why we behave the way we behave, the complexity of groups that we are part of over our lives, our families, our communities, our culture, the country into which we are born, the beliefs we were exposed to, the behaviors we saw. Integral theory looks at what's on the inside of a person as well as on what's outside at all quadrants, all levels, all states, all at once. Now, <clears throat> the more I look at this, the more I see, and the more I think things like, oh, I didn't know that. There are many levels of human intelligence and development. There are many stages of growth in multiple arenas of life. And our opportunity is to learn about this stuff, apply it to our personal lives, and take it into our living. Now, if this is overwhelming, there is a simpler model and by the way, all of this will be on the Ordinary Life website by Tuesday morning so that you can go and print these out and have them to look at. Um, but when I look at this, all levels, all stage, all states, all lines, all types, I see it like a painter's palette. You know, a painter takes a palette of multiple inks and takes and paints and takes and paints and takes and paints and takes and, paints and creates a picture. So, <clears throat> let me put this another way. Being born a human is not sufficient for becoming a human. That makes sense? The passage of time is not sufficient for becoming a human person. So, we now have information about what makes for a human person and the path that a person can take to realize what being a human means. So, being born a human is not sufficient for becoming a human person. The passage of time is not sufficient. So what is a human person? Well, I think, and I'm over to changing this as time goes along. But a human person is someone who has a well-developed capacity for non-possessive love, someone who's grounded in reality and alive in the present moment, someone who has a personal philosophy that makes life meaningful, someone who can forgive, someone who has the inner freedom of choice and response, Someone who can identify with all other human beings and not just those of one tribe. Now, if we had a world of people like this, we'd have a better world. This is not religious, by the way. You don't have to believe in Jesus to do this. I will argue later that that's helpful, but that's my perspective of the state and level where I am. But you can be any religion you want to and embrace this model. So integral theory map can show us where we are in terms of the various lines of development. We all differ. We're, none of us in this room is fully realized. 
And the potentiality of all these things is present when we're born, but they don't exist at birth, and none is acquired simply by the passage of time. There's stuff on this palette that none of us knows or has experienced. That's hopeful. You just never know. Now, here it comes, so get ready. Progress in any of this is not automatic. You see where this is going, don't you? It takes conscious choice and commitment. It takes intention. It takes surrender. This is my spiritual director's favorite word. It takes surrender. It takes a daily spiritual practice. And yes, driving kindly is a good spiritual practice. Now, I'm going to make you a promise about doing this work, okay? It will give you eternal life. Now, I don't mean going to heaven when you die, getting wings, heart, my halo. That sounds so boring. What I mean is doing this work offers what Jesus offered, participating in the life of the eternal one with the living waters welling up in us. Not automatic. So, now, as we go forward, I'm going to be teaching from my understanding of a Christian perspective. In Methodism, there is this thing um, and, uh, known as the quadrilateral. And um, Tom Doherty is my mentor in coming into the Methodist denomination. So he helped me learn some of this stuff. The quadrilateral was a word used by Albert uh, Outler. That's the thing? Yeah. A Methodist theologian who was a, an authority on John Wesley. And he said that John Wesley's way of doing uh, theology included four things. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now, to do theology, to work through this map of Ken Wilber's from a Christian perspective means using these things as our tools for getting into that map. And when I was coming into the Methodist denomination, one of my, my colleagues explained the quadrilateral, meaning four things that go laterally together, to me like this. He said, uh, scripture is like a hammer. Tradition is like duct tape. Reason is like WD-40. And experience is what you get when you hit your thumb with a hammer. <clears throat> now, I said earlier that no educated thinking person believes that homosexuality is either a choice or a sin. I'm saying that from my current level of development and awareness. Not everybody is at the same level of awareness that I have. Some people are at other levels. But from where I stand... We were created as sexual beings, and some of us were created with different sexual orientations. Just like some people were created with red hair, and some people were created left-handed. So I just want to be clear that my stance, the stance of this class, the stance of this church, and what I believe is the stance of Jesus, one of full inclusion for all people at all levels.
Now, there's always been a cult of ignorance in this country, and we are not going to be part of it. I don't want to say what I just said ever again. I'm done with it. I don't want to argue this. It's just a statement. It's, just, it's who we are. It's settled. As for the Bible, I'm going to be using the teachings of Jesus as we have them from the Christian understanding. Again, go back and listen to Dr. Brian's talk about their non-canonical sources that are equally valid in studying the Jesus story. They can be used as guidelines and guardrails on the journey. So I want to say a word about the Bible. Um, <clears throat> When we come back uh, after our time with Jan Phillips, um, I'm going to begin teaching uh, by why knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus as a model of how to be and what to believe, how to be and what to believe is a great model. Um, in, in the Christian Testament, we have four Jesus narratives. Um, the order in which they were written is likely uh, Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John in that order. You can't harmonize them. They are books that, call, that are called the Harmony of the Gospels. You can't do that. They get smushed together, parts of them, especially at Christmas and Easter. You, it, it, Christmas is a great time when they take the story from Luke and the story from Matthew and they push it together and make one story. It's a, it's a great story. I'm that we know it, but you can't do that. And there are things we put in the story that are not in the story. There are no camels in the story. <laughs> there are no Easter bunnies in the Easter story. So each gospel takes liberties with the narrative in order to address the needs of the community to which it speaks. That was not a dishonest thing to do. That's the way people wrote in that particular time. Matthew, for example, in the Matthew story, Matthew tells a story about when all the baby boys, Herod killed all the baby boys. That never historically happened. Sorry. That was Matthew's way to make the Jesus story very Jewish about what happened in the Noah story because Jesus was to be the new Moses. That's, a, that's what happened. All these narratives were written many years after the death of Jesus, and they depended on an oral tradition that was as unreliable then as it is now. If I were to ask one of you to come up here and tell the story of what happened Christmas 15 years ago, you'd make it up. <laughs> it would be fiction. It may be based on a remembered collective memory, but it would be fiction. So why do some people claim that these stories have divine authorship or that they are inerrant? Well, people who are at lower levels of development, and remember, this is not judgmental. I'm not being judgmental when I say that any more than I say that an eight-year-old can't do calculus. It's just where they are. People who are at lower levels of development, and we've all been there, are always searching for a source of authority outside themselves or outside of ourselves for where to look. I've done this in my life. I bet you have too. For Christian Catholics, that source is the Pope. For Roman Catholics, and the big split that happened in 1050, that's the Eastern Church and the Roman Church. And if you notice, the Pope of the Russian Church 
is in Vladimir Putin's back pocket. Infallible? I don't think so. Now, the Bible, especially the sayings of Jesus, are a go-to source because that's the formative scripture and tradition that my reason and experience lead me to find most meaningful. Had I been born in Thailand, we would be having a different discussion. And it would be just as valid. But I want you to know that I know that in the Bible you can find the sublime and the ridiculous. You can make it say whatever your level of awareness and development need for you to hear it say or that you desire. And for some people that leads them to hear the Bible saying that LBGTQIA plus people are less than fully human. My train left that station decades ago. I hope yours did too. The Bible was never intended to be taken literally or to be infallible. Never. It can be taken with life-giving seriousness. So a couple of other things, and then we're done for today. Uh, we're actually done for this year, right? Because we won't meet next Sunday. The next Sunday is Christmas. Merry Christmas. And the next Sunday is New Year's. Happy New Year's. Then the next Sunday is what? Oh, yeah, I heard she was coming. Yeah. I hope you're here. Anyway, I, I, I hope you hear the, the integral map. It's such a rich territory for us to mine and traverse. And I bet you that we will be having the opportunity to say many times along the way, wow, I didn't know that. I just didn't know that. Um, I know that's certainly been my experience with the Enneagram, of getting into the Enneagram. We go, oh, I didn't know that. And it is a tool that can be misused. I know that. So during this time that I have been... Um, been off. Um, I've thought about, been thinking again about the theme. I like, as, as Holly knows, I like to use a theme to work under and I want to keep the theme of making the sacred journey sacred. And I like the word journey. Everybody in this room has some metaphor for your journey, for your life. Um, I have an acquaintance who says that life's a bitch and then you die. That's his metaphor. Uh, the spiritual director that I mentioned to you that I, I, I talked to, Sister Lois, she favors the metaphor river. If you're in a river, you're in a river, don't push the river, go with the flow, all of that's a great one. I've worked with people for whom the metaphor is life is a crapshoot. Some think life is a battle. Some think life is a prison. Um, <clears throat> some see life as a garden. It's something you tend, you water, you wait with patience, you weed, you cultivate. Some think life is a roller coaster. A few years ago, the popular metaphor life was mission. Everybody had a mission statement. What's your mission statement? But I'm going to stick with uh, journey. 
because um, I, I think that the meaning and purpose of life being on a journey is a journey into and a journey of awareness. We could say other things about it. It's a journey of love. It's a journey of honesty, of freedom, of compassion, of patience, of humility, of joy. But you don't have any of those things if you don't have awareness. So the word journey reflects my own sense of rest, restlessness and wanting to know a little bit more and how'd you do that and what's the secret of that and all that. The metaphor for journey has a really solid Judeo-Christian history. It, it lets us know, for one thing, that we haven't arrived, that there's more to come, there's more to learn. So I want you, uh, I want you, I suggest to you, that you commit to being a seeker, not a finder. What I've wanted to be and become are those two things I mentioned at the beginning, authentic and uh, open to the spiritual experience that leads to more and more becoming. Now, I want to be really, really, really clear, and you can quote me on this as we go forward. And I'm taking my clue from Jesus here. That what I want to teach and will be teaching is not a spiritual path. I am not teaching a religious path, okay? Rather, what I am teaching is a spiritual way, a religious way of walking a path that is human. And those are very different ways to think. And along the way, we'll learn stuff you just never knew. <laughs> so no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And I hope you have a very Merry Christmas, a safe one, and a safe and Happy New Year. And I'll see you here um, on January the 7th with Jan Phillips on that Saturday. If you're not here, we'll come and get you. <laughs> Take care. <clears throat>